Hello friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays and also on SiriusXM channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. This week, we will be concentrating on the scourge of modern-day slavery, and later in the hour, we'll be talking to Sister Linda Dearlove. She has been working for many years on the streets of London, helping sexually exploited girls and women. But now, we have Luke de Pulford. He is the founder and visionary behind Arise, an organization that is set on abolishing human slavery in all of its atrocious forms. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Luke. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your really wonderful organization that's doing so much good on the ground, and we really want to talk about that, I do want to ask you uh, to clarify for us what modern slavery is, because most people, including me, have had this impression that slavery was abolished a long time ago, and in fact, that slavery is illegal all over the world. So why are we having a conversation about modern slavery? Because unfortunately, modern slavery was not abolished like everybody thinks. So over here in the UK, people think of William Wilberforce. He abolished slavery. It's all gone. We don't have that anymore. But sadly, that's not true. Um, In 1927, there was a slavery convention which tried to define slavery. And it talked about it as being when somebody exercises the control and rights of ownership over another person. And if you think about it, there are many types of exploitation that fall under that. Things like forced labor, when people are forced to work against their will, often with little or no money, or to try to pay off debt. Things like um, organ trafficking, where people are persuaded to sell their organs for tiny amounts of money um, because they're in exploited situations and they can't say no. Things like sexual exploitation, so what most people would associate with human trafficking, where people are exploited for sexual gain. And there are many other types too, forced marriage, you could say it falls under the category of that kind of ownership. So when we talk about modern slavery, what we mean is a very broad family, if you like, of types of exploitation, of evils. And those types of exploitation are all connected by that control and that ownership. That's how I would define it. In the past, when somebody owned a slave, they had uh, ownership, they had papers that had that, that person's name on them and they belonged to their owner body and soul, as it were. And now it seems to be more about control uh, of the person's actions and the way that the person can choose or choose not to participate in what the owner is requesting of him. Is, is that Does that seem like a fair definition? Well, I think so. The, the problem with choice is that people's choice is always coerced. You know, people's choices are always made in circumstances. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, can't, you can't just take a choice in isolation. So if you imagine it this way, in um, Eastern Europe, where we work at the moment, uh, there are some extremely poor families with very, very sick parents, and their kids feel that they have to work to bring in money for the family, and the only work that's available to them is very exploited work. Their children, anyway, they shouldn't be working, but it's extraordinarily low wages that they end up bringing back home. Now, we might say, when we look at people who are exploited, why don't you just choose to do something else? They don't have any choice. Their choice is coerced. Um, They don't make a choice um, free from their circumstances. 
So my point around that would just be, there is no such thing as a completely free choice. Um, it's always determined by your economic and social circumstances. I like this point. I like this point that you're making. I had a conversation with a friend recently, a Brazilian friend, and I told her that I was really happy with President Bolsonaro because he had stopped this exploitation of Cuban slave doctors. He stopped that program where the Cuban government was renting out Cuban doctors as it does many millions across the world, but Brazil stopped that. And she said to me, but those doctors are so much happier being in Brazil than in Cuba, and they make that choice. So I tried to explain to her what you just said so well, that these are coerced choices, and their choices are actually very narrow, and they do end up being slaves of their regime. I think that's right. And I'm glad that you've used that word slaves, because it's a very strong word, and it's one that has huge cultural resonance, uh, particularly in the US. People shy away from using that word. But let me tell you, there's a wonderful professor of, of the history of slavery up in Yale, um, and he was put this question. And somebody said, is it really slavery that these people are facing now? Is it really appropriate to call it that? And his answer was absolutely yes. The features are the same of the types of exploitation and the control is the same. We're just in a different um, era, so it manifests differently. So it's, it's courageous to use that word, but it is the correct word to describe what's going on. And this is not a small problem. You know, the estimates are that 40 million people worldwide are suffering modern slavery, what people call modern slavery. Right now in the United States, so Luke, you're in London. I don't know if I mentioned that to our listeners. And I'm in Miami. Right now in the United States, we're suffering through race riots. It's very terrifying. I've, I've lived through them before. I moved to Miami actually in 1980 from Mexico during race riots. I'm still a little scarred from that. And I know that there's so much horror going on in the United States. And people say, with justice, that this is a sequela of our history of slavery. And I think there is justice in that. So I wonder, um, in the big picture, if there's 40 million plus slaves in the world, what horrible sequela are we going to endure as, as a global community from exploiting our brothers and sisters this way? See, this is such an insightful question, because what it really does is unveil how complex this crime is and how multifaceted the consequences are. So we're talking multi-generational consequences mm -hmm. here. And we know right now where we work um, with some of our networks in India, there is multi-generational bondage in places like uh, brick kilns, families that have never known anything other than working in a brick kiln. So uh, for those families, we, we have to try to think What will be the consequences of that if and when they ever see liberation? You know, the multi-generational anger, which is inherited by them at the injustice that their parents and their grandparents had suffered. Of course, this is going to bear a terrible burden down the generations. Um, and it, it, what it does, and I think this is why your question is so important, is it starts to point towards what we can do about it. Because it simply isn't enough to throw money at problems like this. And what's needed is profound healing within those affected communities. And that cannot come about at a distance. And Arise's whole vision has always been that it must happen with, within communities themselves. I want to ask you about Arise. You've, you founded it. And what I understand about Arise is that, as you say, it is not something that treats this terrible scourge of modern slavery from a distance, but it is uh, present at the point. It tries to be present at the point where these horrors are happening and for the people that are enduring them. Absolutely. Well, the, the inspiration for Arise was the witness of those who give their lives to this cause at the front line. 
Um, so I mean the people who day in, day out, thanklessly serve their communities. The silent heroes of the anti-modern slavery movement, that's the inspiration for Arise. You know, when you've got so many millions who are suffering in this way, in so many different ways, we have to use the power of communities. One thing that we know from some of the research that Arise has been doing recently is that there is a direct correlation between community trust and slavery prevalence. What do I mean? Basically, the more trust you have in a community, the less slavery you have. Now, that might seem intuitive to us, but you know, what are we doing to build trust within communities? What are we doing to enable civic institutions, civil societies, small organizations, parishes to come together to become more resilient against these terrible crimes, against the deception of human traffickers, against those who would exploit their children? Well, we've got to try to use those levers. We've got to try to develop that community trust. And that's at the heart of Arise's vision. Because if we can do that, you know, if we can build up trust, which really is, it's like kryptonite to exploitation and slavery. Community trust, it, it kills it. How do you mean? I'm sorry, I'm not understanding. How do you mean trust? Trust between who and who? So let's put it this way. If you are trying to help somebody who'd been sexually exploited, and that person was in a situation of terrible coercion and control, in order to assist them, they would have to trust you. Mm -hmm. so you wouldn't be able to get them out of that situation without a sense of trust. And we've seen this um, in places where, for example, the police might have elements of corruption and can't be trusted, then very often the people who are sexually exploited will stay where they're exploited rather than going with those police officers. Very, very common in, in my field of work. Moreover, and this is the more uh, profound point, I mean trust between civil society and civic institutions. So things like the police and churches, things like um, local NGOs, and religious figures, and mm. um, all of the pillars of society. Now, if you don't have that, if you don't have a, a real kind of strong nucleus or strong enmeshing between the different parts of civil society, you find that there, is, uh, there are lower levels of trust. And, um, you know, there are some quite robust measures of trust worldwide. So this is something that people often measure. And they measure things like, how much do you trust your government? How much do you trust your local police officers? Would you trust, for example, your parish priest or something like that? And there are lots of organizations who do this work. And we can take that data and compare it with the prevalence data on modern slavery. Without getting too detailed, what it says is that the more trust that you have, it predicts there will be a decrease in slavery the world over. And that's a statistically significant finding. So it's very interesting. It points the way for us and it shows us that Arise's vision to confront and to stop modern slavery is in many ways one which speaks to that research, one which is backed up by that research. I keep, I'm listening to you and I keep thinking of our horrible situation in the US and the lack of trust that is being exploited right now by violent people and, and also being fanned in the media. Demonization of the police, of, of the civic authorities. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I think we're, sounds like we're going to have a spike in modern slavery in the United States this year. What a terrible thing to say, but I see no trust these days in, as, as our cities burn. Well, I think that's, that's very sadly true. And trust, most importantly, in, in that context between the police and the communities that uh, they're charged to serve. And the breakdown of that trust is a very serious thing for any community. And we can see from the history of 
conflict resolution, for example, that without those relationships is really very hard to rebuild after a difficult situation of conflict. Now, the US is not there. It's not in that situation. But it certainly doesn't bode well, and I hope everything could be done um, to increase that trust, to build it back up. Luke de Pulford, uh, founder of Arise Foundation. He's in London, and this is Conversations with Consequences. So you have recognized a very interesting ally in combating modern slavery, and these are the religious sisters that you have pulled on board to Arise. How are these women religious able to have such a huge impact? Well, there are a few things to say about them. And um, the first thing is that they were doing this work way before anyone else. So before we came on the scene, they were doing sure. it. Um, sisters have been doing this work for decades, if not more than 100 years, because they've always worked to confront exploitation where they found it. They've seen a need and they've responded to it. Here's the crucial thing about sisters from the perspective of somebody who might not be Catholic and might not understand um, the role of sisters. They are the largest humanitarian force in the world by really? some distance. And, well, there's nothing to compare with them. There are hundreds of thousands of sisters at the front line working to protect communities. There's no other in international institution anything like that size. I really, so, that's really news to me. I should know some, I should know a piece of data like that. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. So when you talk to people, for example, about um, the provision of education in Africa or the provision of hospitals in Africa, and people who know what they're talking about will often say, well, of course, you know, religious congregations, Catholic congregations are kind of the first NGOs mm -hmm. because that's the they're doing out there. But if you look at social work or the kind of work which is done to stop modern slavery, I mean, we're talking many thousands of sisters doing this work around the world. There is no NGO of that size and nothing even to come close to it. So we are huge fans of their work for many reasons. And the first is just their sheer dispersion and breadth. Here's an example, a great NGO called International Justice Mission. They're an evangelical NGO, very good. They're the largest in the world. They have about 900 employees, I think, the last time I checked. I know more religious sisters working in one state of India than 900 against human trafficking, just in Assam. So it gives you an idea of their, their breadth. You know, they're embedded in communities all over the world. They're very hard to reach places. They're not concentrated in cities necessarily. They're all over. And very often, they're not paid. The work that they do is strongly vocationally driven. They have very high levels of community trust. And they get in those communities that are suffering and they stay the course. Now, to me, this is a complete no-brainer investment. I can just imagine the trust that they engender in people, that their gentleness, their femininity, the, the fact that they are inherently nonviolent and accepting and, and welcoming and nurturing. I can just see that, how people can trust themselves to the sisters. I I think you said that very beautifully because in many ways it can be helpful to compare their work to NGOs and in many ways it's not helpful because the work of Sisters is truly distinct. It's marked by a spirit of long-term unconditional accompaniment. You know, it's not about impact, it's not about outcomes, mm -hmm. it's just about the person who's in front of them. And that's a very beautiful thing, it's very hard to quantify but it's very beautiful and it engenders trust. I mean, the crucial thing I'd want to underline about their work um, is that with many organizations, there is a perceived agenda at the sure. local level. So people will be thinking, you know, why are you here? Who are you, kind of Western NGO <laughs> coming over here? What do you want? You're only doing this because you're paid, that kind of thing. Um, now, 
sisters don't experience that because so obviously there's nothing in it for them. Um, and I think that that is a tremendously powerful asset that the community of international development has not made nearly enough use of. Um, so Arise has done a lot of work around that. You know, we're interested in their work. We see the impact that it has. We also see that they are chronically underfunded, underappreciated. Their voices are not heard in international fora or at the policy level. Well, they have a lot to say. They should be listened to because their contribution in this area, um, from my assessment, is bigger than anybody else's. Don't they live under more danger than NGOs who, you know, maybe are sitting in their little com- in their compound <laughs> downtown with armed guards yeah. outside? I, I can't imagine the sisters, you know, being protected like like members of NGOs. Well, what can I say? I, I don't want to be negative about our NGO brothers and sisters because they do some beautiful work. But sisters have been killed doing this work. Sure. So there was an amazing sister in Mozambique who was murdered for raising awareness about organ trafficking. She was oh. murdered very brutally. Um, there was a sister in Brazil who was murdered not so long ago. Uh, there were sisters in India who've been kidnapped and threatened. They do suffer under very difficult circumstances. But they know that they're going to suffer under those circumstances. And they've made that choice. It's a discernment, actually, to do what they're doing and a daily sacrifice. So, I, I mean, from a purely secular standpoint, you've got to look at this and think, well, why aren't we supporting these people more? You know, their work is clearly leading the field in so many ways. They're doing things that many other people wouldn't want to do. And why? What's the answer to your question? Why aren't we supporting them more? As a, as a, as a global community, I mean. Well, frankly, I think there's a prejudice against them because they're faith-based. And mm-hmm. they're, they're faith-based. I think that the uh, very secular human rights community struggles to appreciate faith-based work. They they become very suspicious of proselytism. They become very suspicious of motivations. And because there's a lack of understanding and very often a huge theological deficit amongst the human rights community, they just don't really grasp it. They don't really get it. There's another reason, which is a bit more complex, which is that in the world of human rights and international development, we've become obsessed with impact. And impact is a very important thing, but the way we measure it is a bit crazy. It's very narrow. So there's a huge focus on numbers. Like how many people did you help? How many people were there in your How many sandwiches did you distribute on Tuesday? (laughs) Now, those numbers don't mean a lot to people who are dealing in love and trust. Sure. And I'll I'll try to highlight what I mean with this story. So there was a sister, wonderful sister, I know in India, and she messaged me to say that after 10 years of working with somebody who had been terribly sexually exploited, raped, beaten, really badly abused, after 10 years, that woman had gone to the shops for the first time. Now, I knew that in the life of that person, that was a revolution, and I knew that that was 10 years of work for one of those sisters, but I found myself thinking, hmm, what would that look like on an impact report? <laughs> 10 years of- 10 years of investment went to the shops, one, a kind of tally mark for one. One shopping expedition. (laughs) But but the love and trust and the truly the crucial nature of relationship that's built, built up there between that sister and that woman who had suffered so grievously is invaluable. But we don't have a way of measuring that. So we tend to get focused on this very kind of market oriented understanding of impact and we leave behind the really critical work 
of loving accompaniment and, and trust building, which sisters do par excellence. So I think that there are a number of reasons, chief amongst them, this just quite simply a prejudice against faith-based work. And it's interesting because when we think about, from a, from a religious perspective, when we think about the work of Westerners in places like Africa and India and, and Latin America, we worry that secular NGOs are promoting ideologies that are not compatible with the life, the lifestyle, the worldviews of these people, and we call it ideological colonization. So we worry about it from our perspective. It seems to me a much greater danger to go to Africa and promote birth control and abortion as a way to, to climb out of poverty. That's so tone deaf uh, for the real needs of the poor and the marginalized. Well, I think there is certainly a bit of a dialogue of the deaf going on around some of that stuff. And um, so we often find that help for faith-based work will be made contingent upon a particular policy, and it might be policies to do with the things that you speak about. Um, and that can become very, very difficult, of course, uh, particularly for those communities because they feel that the help that uh, they so badly need is conditional upon adopting a, a perspective that they just disagree with. Um, and that, that can be problematic. You know, that, that is also the elephant in the room when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you are pointing at something very important, but for the most part in the human trafficking world, um, it's not that. The, <laughs> the, 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 the issue is simply that um, there is there's a kind of latent distrust of faith-based work. They don't really get it. Some foundations will just have a policy against it. Um, and it's very hard for bilateral funders like the US State Department or the equivalent in the UK. It's very difficult for those funders to fund that kind of work. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to shift the paradigm to make it easier to support this really critical work done by sisters. And you recently named Sister Deirdre Mullen to your board of trustees. Is that a move to make the, the works of the religious more acceptable and more widely known? Well, yes, mainly because she has a very long history. I mean, Sister Deirdre is amazing. She has a very long history of advocacy um, within the United Nations. Uh, so she's worked on behalf of some of the largest NGOs worldwide. And she has a, a very strong and respected voice in that forum. And I think that what Arise is trying to do with Sister Deirdre particularly is give her the tools to be able to advocate even more strongly. Because we've got our ears to the ground all over the world and we hear what people are saying. They're telling us about what's going on right now under the cover of the pandemic. They're telling us about some of the difficulties, like for example, that they could never win support or funding from some of the large institutions that we've already named. So we need to be able to talk about that. We need to be able to decry that injustice. And people like Sister Deirdre are very well placed to do that. You know, we can give her very hard evidence for her to go to the UN and to say, we've got to find another way of doing this, guys. You know, we've got some of the most impactful work, chronically, chronically under-supported, just because we have a blindness to faith-based work. Something has to be done about that. You, you speak so beautifully about the sisters. I'm sure all our listeners are going to run to your website and, and support your work very enthusiastically. And Luke, um, we don't have much time left, and I wanted to ask you about something else that you are very concerned with, because I follow you on Twitter, and um, it's always very interesting. And you follow the situation in China very closely and in Hong Kong. And mm -hmm. just to keep it in the same, there's a lot to talk about there, but to keep it in the same uh, world, the state-sponsored uh, slavery 
in China is a very real thing. And here in the United States, Congress just passed legislation in an attempt to hold Chinese officials accountable. What did you think about that? And, and in general, how do you approach, from the perspective of someone of modern, who opposes modern slavery, the situation in China? Well, I think, first of all, just a bit of awareness raising for some of your listeners who may not know about this because it's just not widely reported. And there are an estimated one million Turkic Muslims who are extrajudicially detained in Western China in a place called Xinjiang, or what the Uyghur Muslims who, are, who make up the largest part of this number would call East Turkestan. So what's done to them? Uh, the Chinese government say that they're kept in what they call re-education camps um, because they are suspected of terrorism. Right? So just think about that for a second. One million people suspected of terrorism. Are they, and these are one million men, women, and children? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So men, women, and children. And some of them are, we know now, moved to other parts of the country for forced labor. Um, all of them are aggressively profiled. Uh, they are subject to the most invasive surveillance the world has ever seen. Um, moreover, there are terrible attempts to try to destroy their cultural memory. We know from satellite images that even the graveyards of Uyghur Muslims are being bulldozed by the Chinese government. So we are well on the way. You know, if there are 10 steps towards genocide, we're fairly up the scale. Um, this is a group of people that the Chinese government does not see as part of their vision for the ethno-nationalism of the Chinese people. They don't want them. They're Turkic Muslims and they're treating them appallingly. Uh, there is an eminent professor of what's happening in Xinjiang called Professor Adrian Zenz. And his quotation about what's happening there is that this is the largest detention of an ethno-religious minority since the Second World War. And that tells you how serious this situation is. The world isn't speaking enough about it. And no anti-slavery organization has any credibility, in my view, if it doesn't speak about it. And that's why... Um, I'm trying to raise my voice about what's happening in Western China. Well, I hope that our listeners will go to their Twitter and follow you. They can also learn more about your organization at arisefdn.org. We can't thank you enough, Luke, for joining us from across the Atlantic and telling us about your work and, and opening our eyes about what's happening in China. So thank you again for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we'll be right back. to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. We continue our conversation on modern slavery now with Sister Linda Dearlove, who has worked extensively with women on the streets of London who have been exploited. Thank you so much for joining me, Sister Linda. Hello, you're very welcome to our little world here in London, <laughs> a funny lockdown bubble. Yeah, so we just got off the phone right now. We just finished talking to Luke de Pulford, who was also in London. So we're having an all-London episode this week. Really fun. <laughs> 
Although we're talking about very sad things because we're talking about modern slavery. And Luke uh, told us some really interesting things about how religious sisters all over the world are on the front lines and have been for hundreds of years, <laughs> I, I can, I'm sure I can say, on the front lines of uh, battling all sorts of injustices, specifically the injustice and the great horror of modern slavery, which is going on all around us, including in the streets of London. So you're one of these sisters that he was telling us about, that you have, uh, your, your hands are in the mix, you're facing this problem on a personal basis, on a heart-to-heart basis. And how did you get involved in helping exploited women? I think it's quite strange to know how I did that because I came to London originally to work in a facility for homeless people and began to see that in the midst of that there were a significant number of women, many of them young women, often attached to a man whose needs we weren't really serving because they never asked for anything. The men were very loud and demanded things and the women didn't. And so gradually began to be aware that that a number of these women were involved in prostitution in order to pay for both their own and their partner, boyfriend's drugs. Mm-hmm. So that in a sense, they were being pimped, mm-hmm. but they were, it, it wasn't the same. They would never have identified it as that. They would have identified it as they were supporting each other. And sometimes he robbed people would have been how they described it. Or, or he looks out for me. You know, we both get money. Um, but she was but being was used. Being, she was being used as a commodity that could be traded. Her services were being traded. She was selling as she would have seen it, but as I would have viewed it, the, she was being sold in order to get the need predominantly of the man. And that was, no matter how you looked at it, the second that relationship broke down, he would find somebody else who was going to do the same thing. And these young women were being pulled into that and pushed into it. And so I began to look at what services needed to be developed from within that lens and develop those services from within a mixed homelessness provision. It became aware that you couldn't. And although we had a kind of room that was built almost like... um, half a circle all of glass but had darkened glass so that the from the inside you could see out but nobody could mm-hmm. see in I began to take the women in there some of the times under the auspices of just having a coffee afternoon. But once you got the women talking and it was a free space, although they were looking at or watching whether the man was calling for them to go, they would begin to talk. And I would say, what would you be doing if you were doing this? Or what can we do? Can it work? And they all without fail said, not while he's here. Hmm. Do you know? So it was at that point I began to look and to feel that I had a call to do more. And gradually over a number of years, I tried to do that from within that facility and eventually realised that that organisation didn't have the courage to tackle what was needed within the context of challenging the systems that entrap women in prostitution. What was it they were afraid of if they lacked courage? I think they lack courage because it 
you know, it's really easy when we talk about modern slavery, the church quite often, the faithful, find it easy to think about these innocent Madonnas who are brought in from another country mm-hmm. here into the sex trade. Or a child, a 13, 14-year-old girl. But they're brought from somewhere else. Yes. The second you have to challenge that infrastructure in your own country, people have to challenge some of their own moral views and values. Is it because people are, they are being encouraged to think of prostitution as sex work, as something that people, women can just choose to do without, that we can't be moralistic about it? Some people view it through a lens that that moves into morality and public decency. And all of our laws are built around public decency. They're not built around morality. They're built around public decency. And I think the same is probably true in the States. But the reality and the arguments against it pro-sex work are all about a woman's right to choose. But nowhere in that is there anything that's looking at rights. And the reality is what choice does the woman make? She chooses to survive. She chooses to allow her body to be used in a way in order to survive and for the most part it's within a system that is trading her that that her if her only choice is survival she's not choosing sex work and if we look at it from a faith perspective and everybody's right to decent work you have to acknowledge that there is nothing within the systems of the sex trade that will ever provide that can ever provide safe working environment for the woman sister so really are about choice you make a very interesting point that luke the pulford made in the first segment as well because a lot of people defend structures of modern slavery because they say that the people are choosing to participate in them the slaves are choosing to participate he didn't we didn't talk about sex sex work or prostitution but he said there are times and and, and he's known of these cases where children choose to go to work, <laughs> to support their families who are not able to work. And that is not, we can't talk about people choosing freely these situations of oppression and abuse and exploitation. And I think when we think about young women or older women, for a woman to feel the necessity to sell her body and to expose herself to that kind of danger and horror and indignity, it, it, this is not a choice. No, Nobody wakes up, nobody grows up as a little girl hoping to be a prostitute one day. <laughs> No, and for us, you see, even language. So for us, we never use the label prostitute. We never use the label sex work. We talk about women involved in prostitution. We talk about women exploited in the sex trade. You know, we use the words that name it. Thank you. That's a very good correction for me. Thank you, sister. through Through that lens of women, prostitute is the label that's part of the criminal tank that that's part it used to always be that the women were called prosecuted as common prostitutes and the issue in it where where in this does the real blame lie it blames in demand yes it's within the systems that if i've got the money and i can afford to pay for it that should be possible it's within school systems that that show sex and sexual intercourse 
as part of a system of recreation. And sister, isn't it also a lack of virtue that we're not inculcating virtues into our into our men and into our girls too, but we're not inculcating virtues of temperance, of, of uh, charity towards others, of understanding the dignity of others. We're raising men in, in many cases, not in my home, thank God, but in many cases to see other people as means to an end instead of an end in themselves. And that lack of virtue... I mean, talking about right relationships mm-hmm. and talking about respect, you know, because the bottom, the baseline in this is about respect and right relationships. It is about believing that some things can't be bought. Or sold. The, yeah, also, but, but, you know, in a sense, when I'm saying that or sold, because the issue is about women being sold, but if we look at it from the perspective of the young men we're talking about, some things can't be bought and within that continuum we would look at the fact that people can't be sold but if we look at that continuum and even if there is an element of saying that a woman is making a choice we've moved past that in believing that when a woman is entrapped in domestic violence that she has to force the prosecution we would believe here but as a society we don't condone that as a society we don't condone murder you know as a society there are some things we don't condone but in addition to that if you look at the role particularly from the perspective of faith perspective you know that the notion that that the right relationship and for us the building blocks that are also about marriage and the place of intercourse within that are about where we within a faith community we would see that but actually in the wider society we see the notion of that sexual relationship within the intimacy of a partnership as part of the building blocks of society they are the building blocks that make up families and that is the place within which we see the notion of 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 that sexual intimacy that we would believe therefore can't be sold i think in addition to that one of the things that's really critical within this same dialogue is how we understand consent do you believe that consent can be bought because ultimately within the issues and the conversations around sexual intercourse we presume that there is a mutuality of consent and if within that one part party is paying mm. either the person or somebody else for that sexual service in inverted commas we are in a situation where consent is no longer valid and you know that that conversation about consent is critical and i don't believe within the context of prostitution when money changes hands that we can honestly say that consent is freely given and exists. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences, and I'm talking to Sister Linda Dearlove. She's in London, and she works with exploited and sexually trafficked women in that city. Sister, you, it's interesting you bring up the point of consent. Uh, I've, I feel that it's a very, it's, it's a terrible thing to reduce sexuality and proper sexuality and proper relationship to issues of consent because just because two people consent to do something doesn't make the thing morally proper and not exploitive. But especially, as you say, in the case 
uh, where it's what someone is buying and the other is selling? Morality-wise, it's it's the underpinning issue when we look at sexual assault or we look at rape. And that's why I would argue that the continuum that happens in the sex trade is actually is taking us in that direction, which is why we do have to look within our legislation at how we frame consent. Because I would argue that within the context of the sex trade and particularly within the context of prostitution, the levels of sexual exploitation that are happening and abuse that are happening to women is we are talking about the woman, because predominantly we're talking about women in prostitution, the woman is a victim. And the reality is, therefore, we need to be looking at it through that lens in terms of how do we remove the burden of the law, which is currently what happens. It's often they that are prosecuted onto they who I believe are victims and towards those who are paying the demand of those who are profiting, those who are organising either as pimps or in brothels, of those when we're looking at trafficking and moving people across nation-state borders, of those people who are moving and profiteering from those women. Because unlike when they traffic drugs, the issue of the human body that they trafficked into the sex trade, this is a gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving, whereas the, the, the drugs are used once. So if you look at the role of serious and organised crime in this, you can see why. But if we are going to reduce this, what we have to do is reduce the demand. Because until we reduce the demand and make it criminal to buy, or to pay for the services as they would see it of a woman, or we in doing that, we then reduce the profit for those people who are moving women into the sex trade or organising them in the sex trade. So we have to look at it through that lens, just as we do with with any, when, when we're looking at, at any level of modern slavery or trafficking. Within each country, we have to have laws around the context within which people are trafficked to. And we have to understand those contexts because we have to make it unprofitable for serious and organised crime. Because if it's not profitable, they'll begin to stop to do it as well. To do that, we have to understand and begin to be talking to our young men and our families to, you know, to, to be, get people to see that actually some things are wrong, such as paying for I a think, woman. I think one, one big element in, in prostitution and in men feeling that they can buy a woman's body is pornography, sister. I tell my boys, I have three young men, and I've told them since they were little, if you look at a pornographic image, you are participating in prostitution. And of course, they, they say, no, you're being an ex you're exaggerating. I said no. Any time that you that you use a woman's body, even visually, you who is not your wife, <laughs> in which case you wouldn't be using her because you're mutually gifting each other to each other, then you are participating in in an exploitive process. Yeah, and I think helping helping young man men to understand what right relations look like, to help them to understand the role of respect in that journey and how part of that respect for the women they love mm -hmm. is also how that respect follows through 
into other women too. It makes me think uh, that it's a shame. One thing that I notice amongst my children is that having sisters, when boys have sisters, they are able to appreciate a girl as a human being. They can see her not as something to be used, but as a precious person just like themselves. It also makes me wonder how much of this lack of virtue in men comes from the breakdown of the family. If you don't have a good, strong father in the home, uh, teaching a boy how, how a good man treats his wife and treats other women, and also not showing young girls um, how valuable they are and how their dignity is, is precious. It's so precious, and they have to guard it. I think in addition to that, you know, how we, how we enable young people to interact with what's going on in films, in mm-hmm. television, is critical. You know, I smile because my, my sister has four boys, 20, 18, 16, and 14. And the 14 and 16-year-old at various stages would have walked out of a room if they'd gone into a room and the older boy was watching something that might have an older number on it, you know, in terms of the code for the film. Because they'd say, oh, I can't go in there because I'm not allowed to watch that unless Daddy's seen it. Mm -hmm. So the notion that they had learnt to self-regulate what they watched, they wouldn't put anything on, they wouldn't use any sort of game if it hadn't been approved and it was outside of their age range. Well, you know what we do? What we do in our house, sister, is we, the parents, we don't watch anything that's outside their age range. (laughs) And we say, they say, this is not appropriate. We don't say this is not appropriate for children. We say this is immoral for adults and children. (laughs) So we're not going to watch it. You know, but that notion of how you help them to learn that when you were very small, what you were watching and what you were allowed to watch was one thing. But then things get a bit older and sometimes the age range is because there's violence in it and sometimes you might want to watch some of those things or some of the things that you may not approve of some of the of the things that are being promoted but they give you the chance to have a dialogue about of course you wouldn't and what it's about and it's how you monitor and enable children to grow with that Mm -hmm. that gives that possibility and I think the issue we would find with many of our women, many of the women who are involved, I'm sure, in the streets in, in well, I know, in the streets in all of our countries, who've become lured, entrapped in prostitution as a way of survival, often they've been pushed into it by a family member or pulled into it by a boyfriend in whatever way, shape or form that they call them to survive or through through a drug trafficker or use, you know, um, seller, whichever way we would we would look at that. But many of them were children who were looked after by the state. Sure. There were people, as you say, where families had already broken down. that They didn't have those same chances that, that we would take for granted. Well, thank so God, thank God, sister, it. that yeah. you that you and your coworkers are at the front lines and, and doing that for these women and helping them exit a terrible life that, as you say, they're enmeshed in through no fault of their own. Um, it's a it's a very sad thing. And, and we'll join you with our prayers and also our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us, sister. And to learn more about Sister Linda Dearlove and Women at the Well, which is the name of your organization, please visit watw.org.uk or you can go ahead and Google Women at the Well UK. So thank you again, sister. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential, existential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on Trinity Sunday. Every Sunday is, in a very real way, dedicated to God, and therefore every Sunday is really Trinity Sunday. But since the 1300s, the Church has celebrated on the Sunday immediately following Pentecost, a feast dedicated to the Holy Trinity, to help us all focus more explicitly on who God is in His profound, mysterious depth, and therefore who we're called to be, made in His image and likeness. We read an incredibly important paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It's the central mystery, no, not just with regard to what we believe, but how we live. The Catechism goes on to say why. It's the mystery of God in himself. It's therefore the source of all the other mysteries of the faith, the light that enlightens them. It's the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of truths of faith. The mystery of the Trinity, in other words, enlightens the mystery of creation, of redemption, of sanctification. It illumines every page of sacred scripture. Helps us better to understand the commandments. Sheds light on the four last things. It reveals what is the root of all the sacraments and prayer. The Catechism paragraph concludes, The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. Underneath the history of the world, underneath our own personal history from the moment of our conception in our mom's womb till now and beyond, has developed within this mystery of the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, it's crucial for us as human beings, not to mention believers, to pour ourselves into the mystery of the Trinity. That means not just pouring our minds, but our heart, soul, strength, and entire existence into this reality. Our Christian life is meant to be a Trinitarian life. Your life, my life, is meant to be Trinitarian. So how do we live a Trinitarian life? We certainly are helped to live this reality liturgically, although sometimes we fail to recognize it. The whole Mass, for example, is lived in communion with the Trinity. We begin Mass in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We end it by receiving the blessing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything we do and say during the Mass is nothing other than a dialogue between us and the Father through the person of Jesus Christ in the light and with the help of the Holy Spirit. But the liturgy should never be separated from life. The Catechism says that we're called to live as we pray, to put into practice what the triune God has come to reveal to us and make possible. And so this Trinitarian life that's emphasized and effectuated by the sacraments is meant to overflow into every part of our existence. Jesus has come to reveal to us who God is so that not only we may come to know him and experience his life and love throughout our daily existence into eternity, but so that we can also grow to know ourselves who have been created by him according to his image and likeness. St. John wrote in his first letter something so simple yet so theologically deep. He said, God is love. The statement strongly implies that the one God somehow had to be a trinity of persons. For God to be love, he could not have been solitary because no one can love in a vacuum. 
In love, there's always one who loves, one who is loved, and the content of their love for each other. God the Father and God the Son in all eternity loved each other so much that their love generated a third person, the Holy Trinity. They exist in an eternal communion of persons in love, which the three persons dwell in mutual self-giving that not only makes them united, but makes them truly one, three persons in one God. We're made in God's image and likeness, and hence are created in love and for love. We're called to live in a communion of persons in love. We see this image reflected in the way he created man and woman to exist in a communion of persons in love so strong that their love for each other can actually generate a third person, similar to what we see in the Holy Trinity. St. John Paul II used to say that this is the deepest thing that can be said about the human person made in God's image. We're in God's image not just by our reason and our capacity to freely to choose, but by our nature and call to live in a loving communion of persons. This image of God as a communion is meant to be reflected in the family, in the church, and in society. And each of us on this Trinity Sunday is summoned to ask whether we really strive to live in as a loving communion of persons in God's image and likeness, or whether we live selfishly, egocentrically, and individualistically. Especially at a time in our culture in which divisions are so much out in the open, Christians as individuals and together as the church must become signs of communion and instruments of peace. God, who is love, loved us so much that he wanted us to share in and spread that love, not just in this life, but in the next. This Trinity Sunday is a chance for us once again to hear God calling us to live up to that dignity and enter more deeply into this communion with him and with others that will bring true joy to our lives now and forever. It's a time for us to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as St. Paul will tell us in the second reading on Trinity Sunday. The love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit. To dwell in it and let that grace, love, and communion overflow at a time when our society desperately needs it. Today we thank God for the gift in calling to that communion of love with Him and with each other. And ask Him for all the help He knows we need so that we might truly be men and women in a communion of love saying by words and deeds, praise the Holy Trinity, undivided unity, Holy God, Mighty God, God immortal, be adored. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 